Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The Beyond Sleep Training Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing real tales of how people have managed sleep in their family outside of sleep training culture. Because sleep looks different with a baby in the house. And because every family is different, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to take. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Kalkadoon people. I pay my respects to the elders of this nation and the many other nations our guests reside in from the past, present and emerging. We honour Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the unique cultural and spiritual relationships to the land, water and seas, as well as their rich contributions to society, including the birthing and nurturing of children. We have a very special guest today. Her name is Pinky McKay and Pinky has had a huge influence on my experience as a parent and so as your host Carly Grubb I'm very excited that she could actually be on here today sharing her story about moving beyond sleep training. Pinky is one of the Australia's most recognized and respected breastfeeding experts. She's an international board certified lactation consultant which is an IBCLC and the best-selling author of four titles including Parenting by Heart and Sleeping Like a Baby which I actually have with me here as two of my well favorite books. Oh, and my other favorite book, Toddler Tactics as well. Uh, Pinky specializes in gentle parenting styles that honor the mother's natural instincts to respond to their babies. And that is exactly what appealed to me. So welcome to the show, Pinky. Thanks, Carly. And what a pleasure it is to be here. What a privilege. It's very exciting for me because it kind of takes me back to all the very beginning of my own journey beyond sleep training, which I actually talked about in one of the earlier episodes. So when once we all go to air and everything, Pinky, you'll be able to listen and you get quite a few mentions in the early episodes as I talk about my journey. 
but it's not about me today. It's about you. And I'd love to hear more about your own family and how you came to the path of finding sleep without sleep training with your little babes. Right. Well, I've got five kids. I've got nearly 18 years between the oldest and the youngest. So I had four kids in 10 years and then I had a bonus baby you know, eight years later, and um, which was quite beautiful and lovely for the older kids too, even though it was all, you know, I'm, I'm up late with teenagers, up early with baby. Um, he was my only one who woke at five in the morning, you know, for the day. And as the kids headed off to school, he would be ready for a nap, which meant, you know, it was all just, yeah, sleep went out the window there um, quite a bit. But with the first baby, uh, you know, this was in the 70s. So I've had babies in the 70s, two babies in the 70s, two babies in the 80s and my bonus baby in the 90s. So, um, you know, I've seen lots of changes and lots of changes in advice. So when I had my first baby, it was sort of halfway between Truby King and Dr. Spock, I guess. So four hourly feeding and I went home from hospital. Oh, my, my baby actually got a urinary tract infection in hospital and had to have lots of tests and he, so he was in um the baby NICU nursery he was a big nearly nine pounder but he was the fattest baby in the in the NICU because he was quite unwell and <laughs> so oh, I was bye -bye. there for about three weeks before I got home I, I I didn't actually know much about postnatal depression you know and that huge impacts it could have but I lived upstairs and I said if you send me home I'll jump out the window but I actually didn't I just said it. I wasn't thinking that I would do that. I didn't even have suicidal thoughts. But, um, you know, it wasn't until later that I learned more about the total impact of how devastating that experience could be. Um, yeah, so they let me stay in hospital and I would go down to the nursery and, you know, touch my baby when I wasn't, when they weren't looking because he was in this big humidity crib. Anyway, I got home and as I left hospital, I was told to feed him and I was breastfeeding. I'd managed to get that milk supply back up again it disappeared but it came back up again I just had this uh, there was a beautiful midwife who handed me a copy of the very old um woman the art of breastfeeding it was a little thin blue book and I read it and I thought oh well my milk's going to come back when that baby comes back and it damn well did because she just said to me you can do demand feeding which was really new like they didn't call it cue feeding it was demand feeding so you were making this rod for your back with this baby because you were allowing him to demand feed and I was told that you would feed him at 6 10 2 and 6 and then the 2 a.m feed at six weeks you were to cut that out by giving your baby a bottle of boiled water overnight and then he would stop needing a night feed at six weeks and I thought that was oh. I Ouch. just thought that was, yes, the dumbest advice because I thought, why would I get up and go boil water in a bottle when I've got milk in my boobs? It didn't make any sense, you know. And one night I'd been getting, oh, and my mother-in-law also told me that one of my sister-in-laws who was super efficient, that, my husband's the youngest in the family, so I had four, five, five much older sister-in-laws. He's one of seven, six boys and one daughter and her sister's a good friend of mine she she didn't have her baby till after my first one but we sort of you know we didn't even know that we could collude until our kids were much older but um you know so we kept quiet about what our babies were actually doing and um 
I just, you know, I, I didn't see the sense of making my baby wait for a feed because what was I going to do for the next two hours when he needed a feed? So I just fed him and I went to the child health nurse and she said something about how many feeds a day is he having? I said, oh, I don't know. And she said, has he dropped any feeds? I said, he's probably gone from 24 to 22. And, <laughs> and she just laughed. She had just come back from working in New Guinea. So I was super lucky that I didn't get that pressure of, you know, that having to do the four-hourly feed. But no, my, my mother-in-law used to tell me how the sister-in-law used to bath her babies before the 6 a.m. feed. And I'm not a morning person. There was no way I was bathing my baby before 6 a.m. I would feed him whenever, whatever time he woke and I would just snuggle him into bed with me and we'd go back to sleep for a few hours. Well, my husband actually let it drop amongst some of his family that oh, one night actually I got up and down and up and down. We'd... Um, found an antique cot, which probably was definitely not safety approved, <laughs> in a second-hand shop as I was going past in the train. And I'd sit, when I was pregnant, I said to my husband, we've got to go back. I've seen this cot. And we found a man who would make the missing brass knob for it. It was beautiful. And I crocheted all these lovely blankets for it. My baby didn't give a stuff about this cot. <laughs> and one night I'd gone up and down and up and down and up and down to this baby and put him back in the cot and then fed him and then cuddled him and rocked him back to sleep. So, you know, and put him down, which of course was such a no-no. And I just was exhausted. And I handed him to my husband, who was just lying there with his bare chest in bed and said, you have him, you know, you have Your him. Turn. And I just went back to sleep. And in the morning I woke up and foggy, I mean, probably only a few hours later, but, you know, I woke up, the daylight was streaming in and this kid wasn't in his cot and I'm throwing off the blankets looking for him. I turned around, sound asleep on my husband's chest. And I went, ah, after that last feed at night, whatever time it is, I'm just going to pass him to my husband and he can sleep on his Daddy. chest. Again, not, not safety recommended or anything mm. like that. You know, we didn't know the difference and nobody talked about safety bed sharing because it was a no-no but I'd grown up in New Zealand my own mother had taken me into her bed when I was a small baby but then she says but I had to because you wrecked me after birth so I couldn't get up and down so it was still again it was because of necessity rather than um yeah rather than um a problem but nobody there really bothered you know, it wasn't a bad thing that babies went into bed with you because I had this first baby in Melbourne. I'd grown up in New Zealand but had the first baby in Melbourne. And, um, yeah, and my husband let it slip to family members that, guess who slept on my chest last night? Oh, we were told we were going to kill this baby and what we were going to do. And I said to my husband, just, just don't say a word. So it was all under wraps that this child, you know, did it. And when he was about... Um, about eight months old, we went back to New Zealand, nine months old, we went back to New Zealand. My husband's an Australian, but we moved over there and um, my mother warned me at about, you know, getting close to a year that if I didn't wean this child, I was going to lose my husband because I had an uncle who was quite a womanizer. All the women he ever brought to our place didn't even have children, so... It wasn't about, but his wife, my auntie, was breastfeeding my cousin till, you know, she was walking, talking child, about four or so, which was very unusual in those days. And um, so, you know, this is this is the reason he left 
because his wife was breastfeeding this toddler and he didn't get a look in. Apparently, this is this is this was just yeah. the around the net, you know, that mm-hmm. this is what happened. So he he was never told he was a prick of a man who, you know, shouldn't have been doing these things. So no, he, he was, couldn't, couldn't have any responsibility, you know, as the no, adult no, no, partner. No, 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 it was no. definitely the baby. And but the way in she was all behaving. The magazines and all of the media in those days. I mean, there was no television. There was no, um, or there might have been a bit of television by the yeah. There was television by the seventies, but you know, there were magazines. There was no sort of apart from Doctor Spock, perhaps there weren't really many books about babies. But all of the media was about you had to look after your husband. You know, you as a woman, that was your job. So. Keep priorities saying, you know because <laughs> you're lucky just to have one you know you know oh absolutely and he's got no responsibility whatsoever no. I mean, he's the breadwinner you have to look after him which actually you know it, it was it was so different culturally that you know this was the man's responsibility was to make the money and the woman's responsibility was to nurture him so that he could do that which Probably makes a bit of sense in some ways, but you don't have to nurture him that much that he's a dependent person with no brain and no... He's not a um, man, baby, surely. And no impulse control, <laughs> surely. But anyway, oh. my mum had heard about La Leche League and I could learn how to wean my baby if I went to La Leche League. And I thought, well, okay. But I still didn't head along. But I, I visited, um, you know, we'd only stayed with my parents for a little while and then we moved into a house and um, a lady next door to an aunt and uncle in that town was a late league group leader and she invited me to a meeting and I went along my child was about 15 months by then and I had no clue how I was going to wean this child you know what a 15 month old is like and um, it was and and I was quite stressed about this how was I going to actually wean this child who by then was sleeping in our bed and breastfeeding ad lib and you know and boob was just what he did it was just you know we'd got into this groove I never ever implemented this stupid whatever it was bottle of water at night or anything but I was I was just confused as to how it was ever going to stop because I I had no modeling I had nobody in the family didn't know anybody who was you know, after my first child was three months old in Melbourne, I didn't know anyone else who was breastfeeding. We lived near the children's hospital in Melbourne and one woman in my mother's group was a nurse at the children's hospital um, and another mother was a dentist's wife and they both stopped breastfeeding at three months because that was considered a good start. So wow. again, get your body back and that was it. So I was really the the weirdo that was, you know, I'd made this rod for my Trailblazer, back. trailblazer, more like. <laughs> Well, I went, I went to a doc, the GP. I had a lump in my breast when he was, you know, seven or eight months old, and I went to the GP, and he pressed my breast and got squirted in the eye. I didn't know. I didn't know I had a block duct. That's awesome. And he said to me, "Oh, you're breastfeeding," and I went, "Yeah, yes, I am." He was absolutely stunned. He says, "Oh, that's a surprise." He said, "But, um, but it's very good." Oh, good. On see, you got another supportive person. How lucky were you in all of these little bits, all even when it was a surprise? Until I was at my grandmother's house. This was, you know, when I was told to wean. Um, I went. I actually got mastitis. Went to the GP and thought I was just going to get antibiotics. He stood, sat behind his desk, didn't even look at my breast, and wrote a script and said, "Your milk will dry up very quickly." And I said, "What do you mean?" 
have you given me antibiotics? Oh, yes, but these are the tablets to dry up your milk. And I went back to my grandmother's house and my cousin was there and she was a pharmacist. And she's like, oh, well, you can't breastfeed on these. I said, well, who says I'm taking them? And my gorgeous grandfather, who's a farmer, sitting in the armchair in the corner as we're sitting at the table having these cups of tea, said, you take a cow off the calf, it'll bellow for weeks. And I went, thanks, Papa. <laughs> so you see, every time I just had one more cheerleader. That's so funny. Uh, I went off and put my, you know, breastfed my baby to bed thinking, will this be his last breastfeed? And then my brain relaxed and I thought, nah, I'm going to chuck those pills down the toilet. And <laughs> I told my nana, nana I had and she went down to the local baby shop and um, asked Eileen at the local baby shop um, around the corner from her um, if she knew anybody that knew, you know, knew the answer to this thing. And she rang her daughter, Eileen rang her daughter who gave, um, got me the number of a Laleche link person who told me, no, I was right, I could keep breastfeeding. So that was, you know, that, and that's then we moved. So I was just really lucky that when I hit a roadblock, you know, my gut was saying this doesn't feel right, that I actually ended up connecting with the right people. And when I that went is- to the Laleche link meeting, I was just gobsmacked and I was so relieved because there were people there with, it was an evening meeting, there were little kids running around, um, you know, breastfeeding, like two-year-olds, three-year-olds still breastfeeding. And I went, oh, my God, I don't have to wean my child. It was just so awesome. So, you know, and then I found they had a library and there was, you know, Bill Sears books in the library and there was Touching by Ashley Montague and, you know, beautiful things that just felt so right to me. So I always say, you know, just don't don't be afraid to step up and say what you're doing because somewhere out there there might be a lonely mother who, you know, just is confused because her gut is t- or her heart's telling her one thing and her everyone else is telling her something different especially those people like me who really didn't want to break rules. I thought I had to follow rules. So finding someone like you who is not afraid to actually step outside those rules is like, it's hugely empowering for, for others around you as well. It's really important. Oh yeah. But I've never been one to follow rules. I was the, no. I was the girl kicked out of the school class umpteen times. Um, I love that about you. Thank you, Pinky. <laughs> we all need so, a little channel more of that. If you have a wild child who doesn't listen to anyone, <laughs> actually, even my family laughed because, um, you know, again, back in the 70s, the wedding vows were love, honour and obey. And I sat there, my husband's um, brother was a minister and this was one of his friends. And I said, no, I'm not saying that. And <laughs> I said, I'm not starting with a lie. I've never obeyed anyone in my life. And my, when he told my mum that, because she was in New Zealand and come to my wedding, and he, she said, well, she's never obeyed anyone that I know of. You know, like, I'm pretty sure your husband probably knew what he was getting in for anyway. So he probably didn't really have me to obey. But, you know, no, that's what I mean. Like, I don't think he would have, knowing you, he would not yeah. have been expecting you to go along with that one. I don't think he's ever one. expected <laughs> me to obey him. But, you know, but it was really funny that I, I'd never really thought about, you know, vows until I said I had to say this. And I went, but I can't say it and mean it. It's not so a vow. I think I'd always, yeah, so breaking the rules wasn't one of my problems. <laughs> 
And I love that because especially it's probably even more important for you back then. Like you said, you had literally no role models. So if you weren't able to actually, you know, question the advice around you and follow your baby, it would have been nearly impossible, which is probably why you didn't have any role models around you because most people wouldn't necessarily have had that that in their character that they would question things that much to be able to listen to themselves. No, No, because... You know, in those days, you'd never questioned a health professional. You'd never questioned a doctor. You know, your child health nurse would be telling you, because New Zealand, they were saying, oh, the Plunkett nurse says, you know, and uh, it, back it's then. It's similar. Well, it's similar yeah. even now, really, isn't it? Like, Ooh. especially for a first-time parent, you really do feel quite often like you need to turn to people who do this for a living, like that this is their whole jam knowing about That's babies right. and they're experienced and they've got qualifications and who are you to put your baby at risk by not doing what they tell you yes and you assume it's evidence-based because they're saying it and you trust that they wouldn't say something that wasn't best practice which we all now know is not necessarily the case so no, tell me with so with like what was your background before you had your babies were you working in health before babies? I'd been a nurse in New Zealand, and but even then, uh, there were very low levels of breastfeeding. I, you know, just did a stint at mater- you know, at the maternity ward because part of the nursing training was a bit of maternity, and um, you know, I don't, I can't remember whether it was a month or whatever it was that we did that, and I really only saw very few people who were breastfeeding from birth. Then it was at the really lowest rate of breastfeeding. Um, And I remember seeing, because I was young, I was only 21 when I had my first child, but I remember seeing a woman who, you know, you'd go around every day and feel the woman's fundus, you know, to see how the uterus was contracting and check their pads and bleeding. And the very few women who were breastfeeding involuted really quickly. And they, you know, it, it just, to me, it just seemed like, why wouldn't you do that? Because that's obviously the best thing for your body. And also I barely had a chest I had decided that I would breastfeed right because my baby was born in April so start of winter and I thought well I'm going to breastfeed right through summer because then I'll be able to wear a bikini um that was that was not my prime reason that was one of my reasons you know but also the babies that I had seen that were breastfed you know, they were healthy babies and they had a beautiful glow about them and I'd grown up in the country and knew that the bus fed calves had the most beautiful coats you know those sort of things had had influenced me that you know I needed to breastfeed so my baby would be healthy so it didn't occur to me not to breastfeed but when I saw these women who you know those uteruses would go down within days where because people stayed in hospital for you know a week to 10 days then that was what they did after having a baby you know they'd have 10 days in hospital and the women who were not breastfeeding, who dried up straight up, I mean, they would be in pain and agony. They would have binders on, you know, tight binders, like a draw sheet wrapped around it. We'd have to safety pin them around their breasts. It was horrible. And I just thought, you know, who, and their, and their uterus was still barely contracting because they weren't doing any breastfeeding. So they would decide not to breastfeed from birth. So I thought, well, you know, this is, why would you do that and put yourself through so much agony? I didn't realise breastfeeding could also be painful. Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, I had really sore nipples. You know, I'm looking in hindsight, I would have had thrush on my nipples, but, you know, because my baby was given antibiotics, but I didn't 
it wasn't even a recognised thing then. So I was given this stuff to paint on my nipples, which was, I think it was called Tink Ben's Co. So it was sort of like a mixture of betadine and some kind of oil, castor oil or something like that. It was really not very nice stuff. And your nipples were shiny, like bright orange headlights, you know, like when you put betadine on. <laughs> Why would I? It Did you have to then clean nice. that off before you fed? Oh, you couldn't have. You'd have had to scrub it. Oh, wow. And babe didn't mind? I'm <laughs> just imagining the colour of the nappies. No, no, no. It was just, you know, they just suck it off. It didn't come yeah, off. Well, I, like, yeah, your it was already in. Yellow nap nipples that were in soaked into your skin. Yeah, nobody said take it off. But talking about scrubbing brushes, when I was pregnant, the advice was to toughen your nipples up by using a nail brush, scrubbing them with a nail brush before you have the baby. And oh. my obstetrician told me that, and I said to Oh, I can think of something you can scrub with your nail brush. <laughs> Go your hardest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh and I think goodness. that was just being, you know, a bit of a cheeky young girl. I mean, you know, at that stage I was nursing in an X-ray department, but, you know, um, yeah, I just didn't have a lot to do with babies and breastfeeding really until I had my and own. Yet you and still, and still, you had quite a um, a sure view that that is what you wanted to do with your own baby. So it's yeah. like you must. Yeah. There was enough background there for. And you. I know that my mother breastfed me for nine months, and I've got a, a younger sister. And I remember when Mum weaned her at about I don't know, it's been about three months. Mum had PMD, and she'd had psychosis after I was born. But in New Zealand, they'd put the mothers and babies into hospital together, and breastfeeding was really encouraged at that generation. It was later that the formula feeding came in. And, um, yeah, so I remember her weaning my baby sister onto this yellow tin of formula. I think it was Glaxo and it was the sunshine Glaxo that was the yellow one and then you went on to the blue one. And I remember her coming out in this horrible rash and she had as terrible asthma as a child. And I thought, you know, so that was enough for me to just go, look, breastfeeding is obviously going to give you a healthy baby. Yeah, awesome. Because they always talked about me. I was the naughty child who wouldn't wean. I wouldn't suck rubber. <laughs> I think I must have been born a bad you baby. Just, <laughs> bad you, just, baby. you just knew what you wanted and you were only going to accept the best. That's what was going That's on right. there by the so standard. About nine months, you know, nine or ten months, my mum, because my young uncle, teenage uncle, had taught me to say titty. So um, that was Helpful terribly uncle. embarrassing. So I had to be weaned. So mum took drying up pills and, yeah, that was it. Well, you got nine months, which sounds like I a lot longer months, than a lot of babies did, that's for sure. I know. Now, it was totally extraordinary. Yeah, so with my second baby, I was in this lovely cocoon of La Leche League women. Um, my oldest child weaned while I was pregnant with him. Um, yeah, and I just, you know, it was just lovely to have that beautiful support and community. Around. I mean, very lucky when you think about it today that community in my neighbourhood was lovely because other women you know, they'd come to my home to the La Leche League meetings because by then I was, you know, a group leader. And my best friend who was another, you know, I'd met her through La Leche League and we would actually swap children because we had different age group children and she might take the big ones and I'd take the little ones or something, you know, just or vice versa. And one day I was in the fruit shop and I had her child I was a two-year-old sitting in my trolley and my child who was a similar age was oh he was just a little bit older another year older but he was 
you know, there. And some woman, I didn't even know. So, again, I got notorious for breastfeeding these older babies, but some woman in the fruit shop that I only knew from sight really came up to me and said, are you still breastfeeding him? And I said, oh, no, my friend breastfeeds this one. (laughs) Face, (laughs) Face, pop, what? (laughs) I love it. So, you know, yeah, and then when I came back to Melbourne with a six-month-old baby, our third child was six months. So we were there for about five years. Um, Larissa was um, six months old. And, again, I really hit the brick walls. I... um, I went to a nursing mother's um, conference. I was asked because I, because I'd been working between those two children, I'd been, because I had a four and a half year gap, I had worked weekends in the maternity ward in um, Hamilton in New Zealand at Waikato Women's. And um, so I knew um, what we were using the Whittlestone milkers on the ward and they were big, you know, like, like a cupboard that you pushed around and had these pumps, but it was a physiological breast pump that could do both sides at once because up till then you had a glass thing with a bulb at the end and you squeeze this bulb and you slurped your nipple up, but there was no sizing. It really hurt. Um, it was horrible. That's what cracked my nipples with my first baby when he was in NICU. Um, but this was a beautiful pump with, spongy um stuff on the cups and it pulsated as it went on your breast it pulsated like a real you know like the sucking as close to the sucking action so it was devised by a physiologist called walter whittlestone um who worked because we were in hamilton and there was a Ruakura, which was a dairy um research center so they do research for dairy which brought in lots of money but he actually worked there and started doing work for mothers which was awesome. And this pump was going to be demonstrated at a nursing mother's conference in Sydney. So they flew me and my baby up there to demonstrate this pump, which was actually held up in customs. But I was asked to put my six-month-old baby in the creche, not sit with her in the seminar. So I sat in the creche with my baby because I thought I'm not leaving my baby with a pack of strangers. She's six months old. She doesn't even know where she is. Teeny, tiny baba. So then I... Oh, there were people who'd gone to that conference and left young babies at home. But this is a nursing mother's conference, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Things have really changed since yeah. then. Yes. And so I came back to Melbourne not having demonstrated that pump, not having sat in the conference because I was sat, you know, in those days they, it was a beautiful hotel with lovely posters of mothers and babies all around the wall, but the babies were in the creche. And I just, for me, that was just, I can't. So that's why with all my seminars and everything, I say, bring your babies because that feeling is so horrible that you're not welcome because you have a baby. And, and then the fact I, that you're meant to be able to concentrate while you don't, your baby's off with somebody else and you're not even mm. sure if they're settled, as if you're going to be taking in the information. Yeah. But I guess the reverse was thought then, that if you have your baby with you, you won't be able to take in the information. And the baby might disturb other people. But, you know, oh, if you have yeah. a baby, you just put, flop out, you know, if in doubt, flop it out and they just suck and they're quiet it's a fascinating perspective that so much um it's like all work stops when there's a baby around it's like no actually there's plenty of work that is achieved with babies around and at the breast and various other things but it it is it's still a common misconception that the only valuable work can be done without kids around so yeah I can see how that would have been the case back then another battle with this third baby you know I even went to a nursing mother's meeting in the evening and was told that um 
this is our night out without our babies. So I never went back. I actually never went back oh. until, you know, and then, and yet the Breastfeeding Association is such a magnificent organisation, but there was their vice president who I met in Sydney at this conference. Turned out she lived not far from me and we started a LHA League group in Melbourne and thinking, oh, well, look, maybe we'll just find some other women that are, you know, a bit more relaxed about this and a bit more, you know, connected because they actually had this background of 10 concepts. I don't know if you're familiar with that. You know, like things like, um, what is it? Um, There was some about nutrition. So you'd never find chocolate biscuits at a lot actually meeting. You know, they'd never be Tim Tams. They'd always be, you know, there might be wholemeal muffins or something like that. So nutrition is a wide variety of foods in its natural state as possible. Um, you know, there were a few other things about weaning and there was one about separation and mothers and babies too. Like those sort of things informed. Uh, and, and as a group leader, you had to. Um, Honour those. Honour those, yeah. I mean, there weren't rules, but they were no. just concepts that this was the best for that relationship that of, between mother and baby. So, um, you know, there were beautiful books about co-sleeping. Um, what was one called? The Family Bed, which came out was a bit controversial, but you know, there were there were lovely, lovely, lovely information that reinforced that nurturing, and then to find that once again I was back in the space where I went to um, a talk at the local kindergarten um, I took my again took my six-month-old baby and the man from the university the lecturer was talking about leaving babies to cry you know it was sleep training but straight up leave them to cry and someone put their hand up and said how long do you leave them to cry for he said till they stop so this was what I'd come back to. So again, the pressure was there with that third baby, but just that isolation, you know. So we started this Lalechile group, and beautiful mums came from down the hills and around about, and there were lots of expats. There was a mum from Turkey who'd been to Lalechile there. There was a mum. There were two mums from South Africa. There were some American mums, you know, and they were either here because their husbands were working here, or they moved to Australia. And um, another mum from Czechoslovakia, you know, there were there were mums from all over who we got together and we're still in touch. It's really beautiful. You know, we will be able to fill that gap for people. Yeah. It really is that, that it's such a vulnerable time in your life, but you're so much stronger when you have people around you who can support you through it. And that's, and even if it's not your first baby, if you have, I think support is the biggest, biggest thing for any mother. So you know, that would be it's, my tip, reach out. And and if you can't reach out, you know, I don't I don't care how you do it, but you can do it on the internet now. So, you know, um, beyond sleep training is no wonder it's boomed because mothers are isolated when they feel that they're not fitting in with whatever the culture says. That's right. And it has to, there's, there's this twang that comes from inside, even when you you try to deny it sometimes it often still there in Mm. the background and I think that's something it can take time but it can if you can find people in real life it's a I know for me that was a massive massive thing with with my second and third baby I didn't I had friends around me with my first baby but I was so in on myself I kind of needed to to build myself up um find my way of mothering that was quite different to those around me, but I found with my second and third, it's almost like I started to attract more like-minded people as I got more confident in myself. I wasn't ashamed to say, 
how I yeah. was mothering my babies last night. Yeah. yeah. And it, it definitely, yeah. 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 And all of a sudden you become, you realize you're actually not so alone once you start feeling confident enough to say it out loud, because it is, it's a really common experience, funnily enough, that most of us have babies who need a lot from us. Um, and yeah. there's, there's certainly a lot more of us who were co-sleeping very secretly, who uh, once, once one person in the group, you know, whispers it out, you quickly find that there's many other people who've also got babies in the bed with them also. Yes, and I found working with mothers, you know, one one time, you know, a few years ago, I saw three mothers within the same suburb within a week of each other. And I'd say, babies the same age, and I'd say to them, have you talked about this in your mother's group? Oh, no, everyone's so together. And I said, look for the mother who's not speaking out because she might be the mother who, again, is not speaking out because she feels she can't. And... I think that's another thing. You know, if you're in your mother's group and everybody else is like, oh, yes, I've got my baby on this magic routine, blah, 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 you know, um, then the mother who's not owning up to that quite possibly is the mother who's taking her baby into her bed and feeling shameful that she or that she's rocking her baby to sleep. It's not self-settling. Whatever this baby is doing, uh, that she just feels so alone. She can't speak up because she does think that everyone else is so together. Yeah, and she could be that mum too who then also goes home and has a good cry because she thinks she's the only one who has a baby not sleeping. So That's right. that was definitely yeah. that was definitely me. I just like it. Yeah, it was hard because I think it's sort of you can be the person who speaks up and it's always great to then have others kind of wrap you up with some solidarity, but it it takes a, a bit you of courage. Yeah. You do. And it's very vulnerable. I know that that was hard for me. It was hard especially coming from a perfectionist background to actually go hang on a sec guys like I'm not okay over here like yeah yeah uh, because you're yeah. going to be you know you you it really have to be brave because if then if you get slapped down on top of that you know if you say oh this is really hard and they go oh we all love it mm-hmm. and I had mothers yep. that that's happened to too and you just go that's so cruel I think though that sometimes is the surface layer because I know for me that you know talking about things it's always it's not usually in that moment that you get people coming and fessing up along with you it's usually the more Ooh. quiet message that you'll later get later on. and go hey I'm so glad you said that me too or whatever so it's often like you know in that moment you might not get that that feeling that you've you've had any impact whatsoever or maybe you mm. feel completely shattered because you just got shut down but it's it can come in from the sides as well so yeah I think that's really important and thank you for that tip now I'm going to have to finish up this episode um are you happy to stick around for another episode with us so we can hear more about the yeah, your, yeah, sure. I would love to hear more if that's okay all right, so thank you for joining us today, everybody, and this episode will be followed up with further information from Pinky McKay, but thank you for coming along today. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast today. The information we discussed was just that, information only. It is not specific advice. If you take any action following something you've heard from our show today, it is important to make sure you get professional advice about your unique situation before you proceed whether that advice be legal, financial, accounting, medical, or any other advice. Please reach out to me if you do have any questions or if there's a topic you'd really like us to be covering. 
And if you know somebody who'd really benefit from listening to our podcast, please be sure to pass our name along. Also check out our free peer support group, the Beyond Sleep Training Project and our wonderful website, www.littlesparklers.org. If you'd like even more from the show, you can join us as a patron on Patreon and you can find a link for that in our show notes. If listening is not really your jam, we also make sure we put full episode transcripts on our Little Sparklers website for you to also enjoy and fully captioned YouTube videos as well on our Little Sparklers channel. So thanks again for listening today. We really enjoy bringing this podcast to you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.